Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Rachel Maidman, Executive Director of the Council, and today I'm speaking with Anna Mowbray, co-founder and COO of the Zuru Group. Anna built Zuru with her two brothers, Nick and Matt, which from its inception 14 years ago has grown to become one of the world's leading toy companies. The Mowbrays have moved into the world of FMCG, with Zuru Edge creating disruptive products across a range of product categories, including brands such as Rascal & Friends, Nude Pet Food, Monday Hair Care and Health by Habit. Anna sits at the helm of Zuru and is the backbone of the organisation overseeing all HR, operations, marketing, distribution, new product development, investments and financials. Anna is also a member of the New Zealand China Council and after Anna joined us in July, we experienced a bounce in website traffic. When we checked Google Analytics, we found that the search phrase, what is Anna Mowbray's age, was trending and driving a huge number of visitors to our site. <laughs> Now, Anna, I'm not going to ask you to disclose your age, uh, although we do want the bump in web traffic. But what I would like to ask you is about, you know, how Zuru's China journey really started. Well, first <laughs> off, thanks, Rachel, for having me. And that was a nice fun fact for the day. Um, I'm pleased I can add some value, albeit it not necessarily being in the boardroom. But um, to divert back to your query, what is the Zuru story? It really comes back to my elder brother, Matt. He was an entrepreneur from a very, very young age. He developed his first product when he was 12, um, and he did so at a school for a school science competition. Um, he developed a hot air balloon, and he really looked into the science behind what made that fly um, and the best way to optimise the build of a product along those lines. And he went on, and he won the National Science Fair, and he won an award from AJ Parks for the most patentable idea at the National Science Fair and I think that really gave him the impetus to know that he could be a designer, a developer and ultimately an entrepreneur and he went on and um, you know we would all work together as children to make quick kit sets of that balloon and we'd sell them at local festivals or door to door around New Zealand and that was really um, the start point to knowing that you could monetize and actually make very good money off of an idea akin to that. Um, Matt went off to university and the student loan that he was taking out didn't necessarily go to him attending classes, but rather went to his undying desire to be starting up and running his own business. And he played around with a couple of different opportunities and ultimately went back to that hot air balloon product and trying to figure out how to make it more commercially viable and to take it to the world or outside of just New Zealand. So you know, that was kind of the inception of, of the business and the model. And, and from there, making a long story a lot shorter, um, we ultimately ended up all relocating over and into China, um, which was a pretty in insane experience and one that naivety was definitely a blessing within because, you know, when I was 21 at the time and really had no understanding of the language or the culture or any of the nuances that come with living and being in China. Mm. And that naivety definitely helped me to have no barriers to the move and ultimately to have a very barrierless approach to starting up and running and operating a business in China um, and for that matter on a global platform. We're now, as you mentioned, one of the, the largest toy companies in the world, we're the third biggest privately owned toy company in the world now and uh, it's been an amazing journey and one that I don't look back on with any regret at all. It's been, it's been very fun. Uh, so I was Consul General for South China, came back about a year ago, and there were Consul Generals before me that dealt with you guys, and the first one, of course, was Pat English, and he used to tell the story about when you first came to town, and your brothers were there, and they were working out of a bathroom or something like that, 
is this true? What actually was it like right at the beginning? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, when Matt first went over there, he literally got a very small apartment and set that up as his first go-to location. Um, and then it moved very quickly into a manufacturing location or another apartment into a manufacturing location, which was just a tiny room with, you know, five or six workers in it, um, moved on to, and, and then we scaled rapidly, you know, just incrementally building out our footprint and manufacturing and using that as the foundational point to really leverage and, and grow the business into an international platform. So without doubt, we were, we were living hand to mouth. I mean, when I first turned up there, I, you know, had a, a mattress on you know in a, in a tiny little room above the factory floor I had no air conditioning in the middle of a Chinese summer and I, I mention this all the time but my shower was above the toilet which is a hole in the ground that all of the the workers in the factory were using um, and it was such a small cupboard that I couldn't even stand up straight in it it was full of mosquitoes we didn't have a budget for food we were eating the noodles that were down on the corner store that cost I think New Zealand probably 45 cents a plate, and that was our meal twice a day. We were taking back the salary from our employees because we needed it to go and forward fund production that was upcoming. Um, It was definitely a time where we were so passionate and enjoying so much what we were doing and running at such a fast pace that we didn't care about those basic necessities or the conditions within which we were living at all. That just didn't matter. It didn't even factor into any of the conversations or any of the mentality behind what we were doing. We were not exactly even taking salaries at all. It was just living with what we had to make sure that we could get, you know, fast track the business and uh, really succeed on that platform. Well, I know that people that have lived in China can picture exactly what you're describing. So it's really amazing that those living conditions didn't matter because South China and those conditions, that's, that's pretty intense. But obviously the journey moved incredibly rapidly. But why did you initially choose South China and what led you to set up there? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, when you sit back and you look at the global economy and where the manufacturing hub of the world is, it, it really is China, you know, it's the manufacturing powerhouse. And so just wanting to position ourselves in the best location possible for success comes down to looking at what is really the impetus behind the business, what is your core competency, what do you want to excel in, and how can we build out a world-class teams around that and pivoting off of that. So Matt always wanted to ensure that we had complete vertical integration. Um, So for him, understanding the manufacturing piece of the puzzle was critical. And so that's where China came into play. It was out of you know a desire to be best in class from a manufacturing perspective and off the back of that we ultimately built out this phenomenal team out of China that focused on and covered all of the core competencies of an everyday business so even in China right now whilst we have you know five contract menu exclusive contract manufacturing partners with over six and a half thousand workers in them you know, nearly 600 people in our, in our Shenzhen office up there, we have all of the bases covered, whether it's HR, finance, product design, development, um, all of our customizations, our sample rooms, all of those core functions are being run out of South China. And it's such a phenomenal location as well for its proximity to Hong Kong, which was the door to the the rest of the world and was really a a central and important hub for the toy industry as well for us. Um, That's where all of our buyers would come twice per year to be reviewing fall and spring summer seasonal ranges 
and planning and organizing and arranging all of their buying for the upcoming season. So being in close proximity to there was very critical to us, but also to ensure that we're in a location which has the best talent pool. So originally we started off in Huadu, which was about an hour out of Guangzhou, um, near the Guangzhou airport. And we very quickly moved down, or probably seven years in, or six or seven years in, we moved down to Shenzhen to ensure that we could be closer to the Hong Kong border, closer to, or located in a more transient city, which really required a higher level of, um, or a higher caliber of employee to succeed and to thrive. Um, you know, Shenzhen's a city that doesn't have those entrenched family and cultural ties. So if you come to work in Shenzhen, you really have to work hard because you can't fall back on family to be able to provide for you or to put a roof over your head or to help you in those times of times of struggle. You have to succeed at your job. So we wanted to be in a location where people were working hard and really pushing themselves forward and trying to excel within whichever for it was that they were going into. So, I mean, I think those are some of the key reasons around um, South China. But at the end of the day, supply chain, manufacturing know-how and just this undying urge and desire as a nation to be moving forward and growing are some of the key factors behind why we relocated there. I think there are a couple of really interesting things that come out of that. And the first is vertical integration. And, you know, the Hasbros and the Mattels, they didn't do that, did they? So is that something that meant that you could produce things at a more competitive price point or adapt more quickly to trends? What were the advantages that you had over the big big guys? Yeah, you know, I think um, this is a huge advantage to us is actually as Westerners and business owners being there on the ground, setting up and running our operations. Um, and there's a big difference in that than just owning or being a JV on a factory in China. But I truly understood and knew at the rawest level the cost of materials, the cost of labour, the the tax and the and the government regulations, the nuances to doing business in China. And it was knowing that at its grassroots, which I think has really stood us apart from other businesses, because we cut out all the riffraff, we cut out all of those middleman costs and all of those extra layers that all of these other businesses have in them. And then also understanding that process of developing an item, how to design and develop tooling, how to optimize the engineering of a product, how to implement it online in the best possible fashion, and how to move quickly with pace and speed and agility in a country where there are no barriers, I think is something that has has really set us apart from any other competitor and gives us without doubt a huge leverage and a capability and skill set that makes us a powerhouse in the industry and for and now for within many industries. I think that's really fascinating as well talking about Shenzhen and why you chose that as a location and I know from my time there that Shenzhen is often described as China's Silicon Valley and the average age there is 30 so I mean one company I went to a huge drone company the average age was 25 we felt ancient every time we went to Shenzhen but it had a real vibe and sense about it uh, and a real feeling of forward momentum. And there were a lot of startups that would lo- situate themselves there because they could get whatever they wanted. And the whole supply chain was there based just on your doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that energy that the city has, which is so inspiring. And if you can tap into it and harness it, it's so powerful. 
You talk about the people uh, and when you went to employ your staff uh, in South China and in Shenzhen, there's obviously a very young but very transient talent pool. What were sort of the advantages and disadvantages of employing staff there? Yeah, look, I think it's, I think when you're employing staff, it is always tricky. You know, you, you the formula to success in employment is, you know, just about really making sure that you go through those layers of due diligence, you know, spend the time, really understand those deep inner workings of people, do great reference checks, do police checks, make sure that you tick all of those boxes. You'll never get it perfectly right. Um, but one of the key things for us is when we did relocate to Shenzhen, we already had this phenomenal, well-established core team out of China. Those were the people that, you know, back, back in day 20, we were taking their salaries back and using it to afford finance orders. These were the people that trusted in us explicitly and ultimately we trusted in explicitly. And those were our voices of China. You know, they were the people that were ensuring that we were positioned in the best possible fashion, that had the business first and forefront and were doing everything in their power to ensure the success of Zuru. So it was ensuring that those people were there helping make the decisions on local employment, which I think was most powerful. You know, ensuring that we had great voices on the ground in China surrounding us that could be trusted, that could be leaned on, and that were there implicitly to help us grow as individuals. So I think that the the power of our core team from Guangzhou coming down and instilling and transitioning the mindsets that Matt and I had built up there in that organisation was so important to a smooth transition into Shenzhen and to employing well and smartly and in the right way in Shenzhen. So obviously um, the area that you are in is a creative area as well and you often hear that China can't innovate and can't create because of the education system or for a variety of different reasons. What was your experience in terms of creativity and staff? I think because it was talked about so often, there was almost this belief a little bit in China as well that they couldn't be as creative or as innovative. And you saw that breaking out in the last 10 years in China. You saw, you know, the flourishing of companies like DGI or, or you know, saw what Foxconn was doing or what was happening in um, Bantian with the tech industry, like the new Silicon Valley of China popping up and all of this emphasis behind China being able to innovate and China being world leaders and I think that really transitioned things into it being a country that could develop innovative new products not just a country that was at the forefront of manufacturing and at the forefront of bringing to the world products that were external of China so I think we've seen a huge switch in the dial there and there's no doubt about it the China education system teaches you to learn it teaches you to be I would say to some degree a little bit subservient, but then you have these exceptional people that are the complete opposite. So maybe there's parallels here to all countries in the world, right? It's just that China's doing it on such a big scale. And every time I would go to the Zuru office, you always had young Kiwis that were there as well. So tell us about, you know, how you started bringing young Kiwis over, why you did it and how that developed. Yeah, well, I think, you know, whilst we had this amazing Chinese team, we still needed to have that Western forefront to our business. Um, and I would often say that we were, you know, predominantly a Chinese company, but with Western Western ownership. And so we had to really bring in enthusiastic, fresh, unique characters and personalities that could survive and thrive in an environment like China. And I think we saw a lot of parallels between 
Kiwi kids and ourselves, which allowed for an easier transition into the culture. Uh, and the other thing for us is that we've always really believed in embodied meritocracy, um, the belief that it doesn't matter about your age or your experience, it's your attitude and your and your ability to you know challenge the norms and push through and rise up and and to really have that grit that allows you to succeed in life. So you know that comes back to having young talented Kiwis that come onto the team and even now with our transition back to New Zealand in a bigger way we're embodying exactly that same mentality as we build up here and we do the same thing and you'll notice that when you come into the Zuru offices in general we're just young across the board and I think it's just this belief that again age is not a barrier it's actually an asset because we like the new way of thinking we love the naivety we love the fact that you know, the young, fresh, impressionable person is able to do things differently and pave a new path. Um, so we've always been big advocates of graduate recruitment programs, but focusing on the best universities, growing great partnerships with professors within those universities, great deep partnerships with them, and ensuring that we bring in talent that inspires everybody around it. So you have shifted your focus now back to New Zealand and you are sort of building here. And how are you finding that you're building a New Zealand-based office compared to building your China office? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, there's definitely a lot of parallels uh, in the sense that we've got those same common goals, but also huge, vast differences. I mean, especially because now in New Zealand, we have quite a big brand identity. So Zuru to Kiwis in New Zealand is almost becoming more of a common name. We've really been able to build this, this phenomenal identity behind, behind the brand and the business. So we're able to tap into some brilliant talent here. And so that's really, really exciting. And we also have the ability to, I guess, grow a lot faster now. We don't have those same risk factors that we had in the early days, right? And where when we were initially growing in China, we were so cash-strapped that we were very conservative about how we did that. We really micromanaged that team. We were so hands-on ourselves. So to look at where we were when we were growing the China business 15 years ago from inception to where we are now growing a new office here in New Zealand, it's a very different situation, but we've still got those same underlying core mentality of we're looking for talent rather than experience. And so, you know, growing now Zuru Edge, which is going into FMCG, what role is China going to play going forward? Because obviously it's not just a manufacturer, it's also a huge consumer of um, products. And I know that you're looking at things like pet food. You know, what are, you know, where do you see China going forward in terms of that um, side of the business? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of elements to how China plays into that. Um, first and foremost, it's still a pivotal element on our product design development. So all of our project management and a lot of that ideation process is driven and, and coming out of the Shenzhen team. And then you push over into the manufacturing frontier and that's really divided across the FMCG business. It really, when you're moving into the sector, supply chain is so important that we'll actually end up manufacturing in multiple locations throughout the world just to ensure that we're really maximising our supply chain, ensuring ease of transportation and cost profile when it comes to delivering goods. And then we're definitely not manufacturing everything out of China, but we still have a huge China footprint in the manufacturing front. But then, of course, you've got China as a market. And so that's something that we've been actively pursuing as of late. We set up our um, toy China sales team 
probably be two years ago now, um, and that team has done exceptionally well, uh, maintaining profitability and growing very aggressively and very rapidly in a short period of time. Um, it is a very unique market, even understanding the marketing front and, and making sure that we can maximize that and really maneuver in, in China in the right way has been a hugely eye-opening experience for myself. But without doubt, we are opening up the doors for our FMCG items to be marketed and, and consumer products in China, um, in particular around some of our, our more New Zealand-based items such as Dose and Co, which is the collagen collagen product, and and a couple of new brands that we're moving into. Um, we're also working on a pet in the pet food space as well because that's a really rapidly growing sector in China. So very close ties in with Alibaba, um, making sure that we're executing as well as we can in market and just learning every step of the way as we grow. Mm, yes, because I was actually going to say, you know, what role is the New Zealand brand going to play in this particular area? So for example, with Dose & Co, with collagen, with pet food, etc. You know, how integral do you think the New Zealand story is going to be for driving those brands in China? Yeah, definitely. Where it's a predominantly New Zealand manufactured item, that will be a huge part to play in that story. And I think there's a lot of synergies and a lot we can do with, with New Zealand and New Zealand brands to help move into, move into China and it more case of fashion and easier easier fashion, I think, with the power of the New Zealand brand, definitely. That doesn't necessarily transfer across all of the brands that we're working on, but for the ones that are centred around that as a, as a cornerstone, we will certainly be maximising the opportunity. And you talk about having so many women working for you, uh, and we're both mothers that have had young families in China and in the China environment. Uh, I know for me it was just... One trip to Hong Kong where I took our daughter there for a gymnastics competition and it really just showed you where the world is headed. It was incredibly competitive. So many people crammed into this room, long hours, tough competition. And I just thought, wow, we're coming into the new Asia century. This is full on. You know, how did you find sort of being a mother um, with kids in that environment? And how do you think Kiwi kids are really prepared for this new Asian century? Yeah, I mean, I think... The Asian century is inevitable. The scale and the speed with which China moves and the growth trajectory of their leadership is not going to slow down. I think it's only going to get bolstered going forward. So I'm very grateful for my children's time in Asia. It's so interesting when I, I sit back and I think about their journey. You know, I started them off at local school in Shenzhen and then I moved for two years before I've come back to New Zealand now, I moved for two years to Hong Kong. And I remember the very first day at his new school in Hong Kong, my son came home and he said to me, I said to him, how's your day at school? And he goes, it was great. We just played all day. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, we just didn't, we didn't do any work. We just played all day. It was so easy. And I thought, oh no, what have I done? But just taking you know, him from this environment that was so driven and expected so much out of people and like you say long hours and you know a really um, high pressure environment into even Hong Kong was seen as a step backwards and then he came to New Zealand and he went into local school and I had exactly the same conversation with him except he was two years older and this time it was I don't feel that my brain's being challenged anymore so it's it's quite interesting when you stop and you break it down into that bite-sized piece from a child's mentality exactly what the difference is from a cultural perspective. I'm very grateful that they got the language skills. I'm very grateful that they've had positive experiences 
and such inspiring experiences out of China. They talk all the time about wanting to go back. They want to be in the offices. They want to be over there with the people who've, that we've, we've worked with over the years. Um, I took my, my son on a trip through China with an organization that, that we've built there called Captivating International, which really helps women or girls from the age of 13 to 15 to be able to get an education when they haven't had the opportunity for education before. So we've supported around 600 girls through school in China and every year I support around 250 and I took my son over to meet a lot of those girls as well and it was one of the most amazing experiences imaginable and something that he constantly talks about wanting to go back and be a part of again. So I think yeah coming into this Asian century our children are going to be so well primed to be able to adapt and to integrate into that culture. And that's very, very important. These have all been sort of great stories about your time. But as we know, doing business in China isn't always straightforward and it isn't always easy. Have you got a time when things didn't go right? And what do you think has actually been your biggest challenge? Oh, there were many times when things didn't go perfectly right. And I think that's that's one of the best and biggest challenges of doing business, right? Anywhere in the world is being able to front foot those challenges, get up, pick up, rebuild and go again. And that's where China's amazing because there's really no such thing as failure there. And it's all about failing fast and then getting up and trying again. I love that mentality and it really instilled and helped us to grow that mentality within ourselves and ultimately within the business. But there were certainly some interesting times and interesting stories to share. One of the, and I'll just quickly touch upon this, but one of the uh, the very eye-opening experiences that I had in China was probably within a year of me being in China, I was, I remember just sitting down in the office at my computer and, and Matt came and he said, you wouldn't believe it, you wouldn't believe it, come up and check this out. I said, what do you mean, what do you mean? He's like, come up, come up to the roof. Went up to the roof and um, on the roof of our factory, there was the power box and out of the power box was probably 30 lines of wire and the lines of wire were all leading down into the neighboring village. So the neighboring village had been tapping into and utilizing the power from our factory's power box to service the entire village. And you know, the, the best part of all of this is that the factory was on the village's land, so the rent was going to the village and then the village was also taking the power and it was all an interconnected web of, um, of an interesting situation. And so the best we tried to uh, figure out what the best approach was to getting this resolved, and we thought, you know, we'd just go down and chat to the village and politely let them know that that, that was our power and that we were paying for it, and would they mind compensating us for how much they've been taking? And of course, that didn't go down so well. That was it was almost uh, seen as a bit of a right to be able to tap into the power. So we thought, okay, well, I guess we'll just have to get ourselves another factory. So we uh, found another factory location that we could move into. Um, we were right in the heat of production for a huge, huge order that we had going on in a partnership that we had in the US that was critical that we proved ourselves as a reliable sp supplier and we couldn't be late on delivering, et cetera, et cetera. And we were also manufacturing quite a complex product at that point of time. It was one of our first successful items and it was a range of light-up night balls that involved rotational molding and injection molding and gluing and cutting of materials etc etc so it was quite a complex product for us and we thought we're just going to have to move out of this factory because the village is not going to stop taking the power they're also our landlords this is a very complicated situation and the powers that be didn't really want to have to deal with that sort of low menial situation that was going on between some westerners and some and some locals so 
We then decided that we'd just move out of the factory. We started to move out of the factory and the village all came over very rapidly and barricaded us into the factory. (laughs) So then we had an an interesting negotiation to figure out how we were going to get out of our contract um, and relocate to a new factory. And um, I mean, that's just, you know, very short and snappy version of probably a quite long and convoluted story um, that taught us a lot about China, without doubt, um, and was very, very eye-opening at the same time. But also, you just have to look at it with a bit of respect and think, why not? Great. So finishing up, if you had one piece of advice that you wanted to pass on to Kiwi companies who were doing business in China, what would that be? I think this one's an easy one for me. It's just invest on the ground in China, in your people, because really your people are the the door to success, but also investing there means that you're seeking to understand, that you're, you're observing, you're learning, and you're adapting, and you're understanding how to get the best out of China. So just invest your time there on the ground to be informed and to get the best people around you. You've listened to part one of a two-part conversation we had with Anna Mowbray. Tune in to part two to find out how Zuru's team responded to COVID and how Anna herself raced during lockdown to secure PPE for New Zealand. For more podcasts, please check out the Council's website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz, or listen on Spotify, iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.